want to begin tonight by asking you to think about your favorite series, your favorite television series, your favorite movie uh, series, something that has some substance, um, not a sitcom, not something you can just pick up here or there, something that you're going to have uh, multiple episodes of and watch. Um, maybe for me it might be Lord of the Rings, you have to think, and there's a series involved. If Molly were here tonight, she would say it's something Jane Austen inspired, uh, Pride and Prejudice, BBC version, um, something that goes on and on and on, and something that has a plot and characters and subplots and development. Um, maybe you think 24, um, maybe you think Harry Potter, uh, something that, that involves plots, subplots, characters, development, multiple installments, multiple episodes. Uh, imagine sitting down, watching, uh, maybe installment after installment. You're halfway through maybe the fourth one. Enjoying your popcorn, enjoying your soda, whatever it is. Uh, and somebody walks in the room. Somebody who's not seen any of the episodes. Somebody who's not seen any of the installments. And you have a decision to make, right? You can do one of two things. Uh, you can be irritated uh, to no end by all of the questions that come. Or you can be bothered by the fact that they don't know what's going on and you can tell by their nonverbals and their size that they're frustrated because they have no clue about what's going on. Been there, done that, right? I've been that guy before, you've been that person before, or you can press pause. You can press pause, take a few minutes, take five minutes, uh, take some time and explain to your friend or your family member, okay, here are the major players, here's what's going on, here's this plot that you need to understand and there's a few other details you need to understand. If need be, I'll press pause again in a little while, but I'm going to bring you up to speed and if you do a good job of it, the two of you can enjoy it together, right? Been there, done that, who knows how many times. And if you haven't been there and done that, you can certainly appreciate what I'm saying, right? Now let's think about the Bible. There aren't four installments, four one-hour episodes. There aren't, four eight, uh, there aren't eight one-hour episodes. Uh, it's not a season-long thing. It's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years covered with plots and subplots and characters and supporting actors and actresses and there are all of these things that cover so much time. It's not a book of timeless truths. Uh, the Bible has a book of Proverbs, but it's only a small part. Uh, the Bible is not a book of Proverbs. There is the book of Proverbs, but it's not these, these principles you just, you know, have one a day for, for inspired living. That would be easy. You could pick up wherever you wanted, but the Bible isn't that way, is it? The Bible's not laid out that way. The Bible is laid out with all of this history, with all of these different characters and plots and subplots and twists and turns, and there's theological development, and there's historical development. It's no wonder that many well-meaning people have come to some really bizarre conclusions about different things in the Bible. I no doubt have come up with some odd conclusions about things in the Bible, especially when you're young at this and you're new at this and you're reading the Bible. You don't have a point of reference. You're feeling for the walls. And, and, and it, you can just make a disaster fast, if not start a cult. There's so much information. 
it's so good that God uh, has given us help. He's given us help because we're not, we don't just become Christians in isolation. That's not how it's supposed to work anyway. Uh, we become Christians. We're supposed to be part of a church where there are gifted teachers. People can help us. We do one another's and we, we help each other to learn along the way. And if you will, it's like we can press pause and try to help people get up to speed and get caught up. It doesn't mean we're telling people about secrets that aren't really there so they can read the Bible our way. I mean, that happens, but it shouldn't happen. But what we can do is we can, we can say, let me help you understand. Let me help you understand some major themes. Let me help you understand some major characters. Let me help you understand a major plot involved here. And if people do that for us, probably doesn't happen often enough. It really, really, really helps. You can sit back and quote, unquote, enjoy the show. <laughs> it makes tons of sense. And so what I want to do tonight is hopefully help you if you're new. Many of you aren't new. Maybe I can help you to help others uh, to who, who are new. But even if not, just to, to, to remind us, to, 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 to help us see there are some major, major themes. And if we can get these major, major themes, we got a head start. We can make sense of this, and it's so much more enjoyable, and it's so much safer. And so that's what I'd like to do tonight. Start a top ten list. Top ten list of big Bible themes. We'll do five tonight, Lord willing. Um, and we'll do five the next time we're together. And I think it'll really help you. Uh, these aren't the only themes, but they're certain, they are certainly major themes. And, uh, and again, even if you've been a Christian for a long, long time, I think there's going to be something for you to get out of it. I apologize now that we're going to cover way, way too many verses for one little uh, meeting like this, but it's just kind of the nature of the beast for tonight. And so you can keep up as long as you'd like, but eventually I'm just going to have to talk about a million miles a minute just to get us done. So, um, that's kind of where we're headed. So we're going to try to get good at pressing pause, giving people some help so they can sit down and enjoy. This is all part of a bigger series, what we're calling the drama of redemption, uh, making the assumption, which I think is well-grounded biblically, that there actually is one big major storyline, and it does have to do with God's redeeming purposes. Um, and which is why we keep going back to Ephesians chapter 1. So the first major Bible theme that we have to grasp, Old and New Testament, it'll really help us, is, is the creation theme. Is the creation theme. And what I'm not going to talk about is creation as in age of the earth. There's a place for us having that discussion. I'm talking about creation as a major theme as it would relate to the drama of redemption that goes from Genesis 1-1 all the way literally into the book of Revelation. And if you can understand this major big theme, all of a sudden a lot of dots can get connected. And so let's start with the obvious and then we'll go to the not so obvious perhaps. But this, this is crucial that we get this to understand that God is sovereign, to understand that God is uh, the one who has the power to do the otherwise undoable, that he can, he can create ex nihilo uh, out of nothing, uh, that he has the power to do new creation, that he has the power to, to create us um, spiritually again. So Genesis 1-1 is the obvious one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No-brainer there. We know that. We have to start there. But it starts there for a good reason. 
Then we move our way through the Bible. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So another similar kind of text, and we see those throughout the Psalms. Then we see sustaining kinds of text, not just creating initially, but sustaining kinds of text. Psalm 50, verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So he not only creates initially, but he oversees and controls his creation. We get that part. But then we start moving through the biblical narrative and we see he creates in other senses. God creates a nation. He creates the nation of Israel. Well, that would make sense because he has a past and a history of creating. And so we read passages like Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation, a creation kind of statement. They're a non-entity, a non-people, and he's going to make them a great nation. How could he possibly do that? Well, he's the God that speaks and things happen. He can take someone who is a nobody and he can say, I'm going to make you a great nation, and it shouldn't totally surprise us. It's just like God to do that kind of thing. He's the one who speaks things into being. And that's further developed throughout the Old Testament of God making the nobodies somebodies, not because they're virtuous, but because He is great and powerful. And we keep moving our way through. We get to the New Testament, and I know we're going fast, but you get to the New Testament, and all of a sudden you see uh, some of this getting filled in more as it would relate to Christ. And you, you read the Colossians text and the Hebrews text, and you see who, who is this Creator? It's none other than Jesus Christ. That's who that Creator is. Which, by the way, helps us to read our Old Testament and understand it a little bit better than we would have otherwise. Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, talking about Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So he's even using creation talk, not about heaven and earth only, but all of these other things. All of these uh, other things like dominions and authorities. he's, He's the sovereign over all of it. All things were created through Him and for Him. Even that creation motif, if you will, comes back to, well, if He made it, then He's the glorified one. It's created by Him. Oh, it's for Him. He's the center of everything if He's the Creator. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Christ is central. But then we keep going in our New Testaments and we start seeing, okay, creator of the world, sustainer of the world. He does it in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he creates a nation. And now we're ready. Now we're ready to understand he causes us to be born again. Born again? Yeah, like in creation. We're born a second time. John chapter 3, you must be born again. How could this possibly be? Well, spiritually, we have recreation, if you will. And God is the one who does this. He has to be the one to do this. Or how about 2 Corinthians 5.17, a passage, probably the first passage I ever memorized as a Christian. It was a good one for somebody to tell me to memorize. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, united to Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're We're seeing that theme carried throughout, and now we're a new creation. It makes sense that God would do this because God is a creator. 
it would make sense that this would be Christ because He brings new life and new birth through the power of the Spirit. Going from Genesis to Revelation, we keep going. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness... Oh, creation motif back in Genesis with darkness. He called you out of darkness, but now it's spiritual darkness, into His marvelous light. He called you. Remember, it's the same God who says, what? Let there be light. And there was light. Well, just as He did that physically, that's what He does spiritually. And we can better appreciate it if we understand that God is the God who does this. The God we're talking about is the God who does this. Things, things start to gel more. You see things are connected and it's not like all of a sudden this happened out of nowhere. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, creation motif, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Same kind of thing. Romans chapter 4 verse 17. Here is justification ex nihilo. It's amazing. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's Genesis talk. But he's talking about salvation. He's talking about justification. I love it. Then we move to new creation as well. Second Peter 3.13 But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21 verse 1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Romans chapter 8, we won't take the time to go there. We see it as well. And what's interesting throughout all of this, when you start putting all the pieces together, who's at the very center of all of these things? It's Christ. It's Christ. Whether we're talking about salvation, we're talking about new creation, we're talking about, in light of Colossians and Hebrews, original creation, it's Him. And as the Creator, He's the one who is therefore to be glorified and honored because He's the Sovereign and He's central to the whole thing. I so wish, and I, I, I so wish somebody just could have helped me understand that. Seriously. Now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible with that in mind. Now I do read the Bible with these kind of themes in mind. And you start seeing it. And you go, this is pretty cool. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand and a lot of names I'm going to skip over and a lot of, you know, of the sub, 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 subplots that I still don't quite get. But, you know, I'm getting some traction. I'm getting some traction here. And maybe you're way ahead of me and maybe you're way ahead of everybody else and you've been seeing this for a long time. But you could really help somebody, if not be helped yourself even tonight, just seeing the continuity, seeing the connectedness, how it goes through. From beginning to end. As one, as one person said, in Christ the whole creation was created and holds together. And in Him a new creation comes into being out of nothing but sin and death. Darkness. Christ is a sinner from start to finish. So what does creation have to do with redemption? The drama of redemption? Well, I think we've already seen enough of the information and enough of the data to say... It's a vital theme when it comes to this overarching 
drama of redemption, creation, creation out of nothing, creation, oh, new creation, new creation, not just people-wise, new creation cosmically, and who's going to do it? It's Christ, it's Christ. Let's move on to another theme, and we're flying, this is awesome, I'm warming up actually pretty quiet in here no bibles turning going too fast or you're just that fast digitally i don't know maybe you should just open your bible somewhere so i'm not so nervous about nobody having an open bible anywhere but um i've just been like programmed and trained to be nervous when people are preaching sermons and there are no bibles open uh, anyway, one time when, when I was in seminary, uh, one of the professors, uh, he was on the translating committee for the New American Standard Bible, so we would jokingly say he wrote the Bible. Um, but anyway, uh, he would sit, whatever row he would sit on, and, and when we had a guest speaker, and we had some good speakers, and we had a whole lot of bad speakers. Uh, I, I don't know what the deal was, but we had some doozies. Um, I won't name any names to protect the guilty, but... He'd start with his Bible open. And so many times, Dr. Thomas, Robert Thomas, his Bible would close. And he would just sit there like the gentleman that he was. And we would all look over at Bob Thomas's Bible. And if it was shut, we'd know it was a bad chapel speaker. Because <laughs> he, he wasn't preaching the text. And um, so whenever I preached at chapel there, I'm just watching Dr. Thomas's Bible and trying to be as textually driven as I possibly can so he'll, he'll, so he'll keep it open. Anyway, that was neither here nor there. Thank you for letting me tell you stories. Um, the only other story I'll tell you is that we had another professor in preaching class that uh, he told a friend of mine, a neighbor of mine, um, to sit down during his sermon in preaching class. And uh, he told him, he said, you talk a lot, but you don't say a lot. So he was a year ahead of me. And my goal in preaching class was at least to get through preaching class without Alex Montoya ever telling me to sit down. I didn't care if I got a C. As long as he said, sit down, you talk a lot, but don't say a lot, I considered it an A in the class. So anyway, um, just a little relief for us. Second theme that's really going to help us that goes Genesis to Revelation, and that theme is the theme of covenant. Covenant is a major Bible theme. If you're going to understand the Bible, you've got to understand something about covenant. This is not, we're, we're going to just skim the top because later on in the Drama of Redemption series, we'll spend two weeks on covenant. So this is just in the top ten list, but we're not going to cover everything just to get us sort of started. I'll start with the question, why should you care about covenants? Why should you care about covenants? I have a list of reasons that I'm not going to share tonight. Why care about covenants? How about this? You'll never, ever, 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 ever understand the Christian gospel and you'll never understand the work of Christ if you don't understand something about covenants. It's a gospel issue, right? This morning at Omaha Bible Church, uh, many of you were here. We celebrated the Lord's Supper, and I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we learn right there that central to the work of Christ is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Our salvation is dependent on the new covenant. There would be no salvation apart from the new covenant, and so it's vital to us. It's vital to us. 
And it's something that we should want to understand, want to know. 1 Corinthians 11.25 was the text I read this morning. Or how about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, describing the work of Jesus and the gospel as the blood of the eternal covenant. So we should have an interest in covenant. Dennis Johnson, a professor uh, that I've had in the past, said this about covenants. He described uh, the Bible, uh, he, he said this, the texture of the Bible is covenantal. The texture of the Bible is covenantal. I, think, I, I tend to think he's right. I tend to think he's right. From Adam... To the very end, we see God working covenantally. We'll talk about what that means. Over 300 times the word is used in the Bible, literally literally from Genesis to Revelation. But when you're talking about just mining the Bible for words, that's something, but it's not everything. But it's something that it's used throughout the whole thing, and it's used many, many times. Here's a couple of different, here's a few different definitions that might be helpful. Some shorter, some longer. Brown and Keel, in their helpful little book called Sacred Bond, say this. A covenant is a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. A covenant is a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. I don't know anyone who would disagree with that. They also, in another place in their book, say, the most common synonym for covenant is oath. They go on to say it's not the only one, but the most common one, in their opinion, a synonym, as it's used in the Bible, is oath. Dennis Johnson, uh, who I referenced earlier in his book, Him, Him We Proclaim, says this, Biblical covenants are treaties that express a committed relationship of love and loyalty between God as sovereign, God as king, and His chosen people as servants. So we have the sovereign and the servant and it's expressing God's loyalty. Something I wrote down recently um, for something, uh, and I'll just read it here regarding covenant. The term covenant expresses the formal relationship between God and the beings created by Him. We are not free to act however we wish, but we are under formal obligation to relate to God in the way He has stipulated. That's covenant terminology. So if mankind has a covenantal relationship with God, it is a formal relationship where there are stipulations and sanctions. And then I also wrote, if it helps, when we speak, we as Christians many times speak this way, when we speak of the federal headship of Adam in representing the human race, it is essentially the same as saying the covenantal headship of Adam. The word federal comes from the Latin word, otherwise translated, covenantal. It is describing a certain kind of relationship. Think of it in these terms. The men in Theology for Breakfast talked about this not too long ago. Was Adam free to do whatever he wanted? Adam wasn't free to do whatever he wanted. By nature of the fact that he was created by God, he wasn't free to do whatever he wanted. He was obligated as a creature to his creator. There were parameters. He wasn't free. There were stipulations. There were requirements. And so many have suggested, I will see in the Bible actually, um, spelled out elsewhere, it was a covenantal relationship. 
Where does this come from? It comes from treaty language in the ancient world. I'm going to give you more than many of you want to know, but as far as a point of context, uh, here's a helpful quotation. The ancient Near Eastern world organized its international political life by making treaties. Having saved a lesser ruler called a vassal, a vassal is the lesser ruler, and his people from a foreign oppressor, the greater king called a suzerain. Two key words for the night. Got to know these to go to heaven. Just kidding. The vassal is a ruler who's a lesser ruler. And the suzerain is the greater ruler who rescues the lesser ruler from oppression. Okay, this is treaty talk. Would issue a treaty or covenant with the terms of their new life under his protection and imperial governance. What's interesting about that is you, you see that in extra biblical writings how they would make a covenant. And there would be commitments and, and oaths would be taken. I will protect you. I will provide. I will fight for you. And here are your obligations to me. It's a covenant. It's a formalized relationship where there are oaths taken. And it takes different kinds of forms and different kinds of nuances. But this is an, an idea that comes, up, uh, that comes up in the Bible for the first time. But it's an important thing. Others have made the observation, isn't it interesting, that Israel can have nothing to do, they should have zero semblance with the pagan religions of the world. And yet the terminology when it comes to politics and relationships when it comes to these suzerains and vassals, it's very much a frequent common kind of thing in Scripture. Well, let's look at some samples of biblical covenants that are important ones. If you would, look with me in your Bible at Genesis chapter 6. First time the English word covenant comes up in the Bible, Genesis chapter 6. And we read in verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Genesis six eighteen. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Noah. It's a no-brainer. There's a covenant made. He says it's going to be a covenant with Noah. That's the first time the word covenant is used in Genesis, as far as I know. But I don't think it's the first covenant. It's actually a, an oath taken earlier. There's actually a formal relationship with stipulations earlier than that. And I believe that would be the covenant God makes and the covenantal relationship God has with Adam. Two places to go, Romans chapter 5 and Hosea chapter 6. I'm going to read the Hosea chapter 6 passage that would help us to understand that God had a covenantal relationship with Adam. There's a formal relationship. Adam isn't free to do whatever he wants to do. He's not the author of his own universe. Uh, he is under obligation to God to do what God says. Do this and good things will happen. If you do Otherwise, bad things will happen. God is in charge. God is good. God is in charge. Romans chapter 5, Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 is an overlooked passage sometimes. And it says this, But like Adam, they transgressed or broke the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. These people broke the covenant. And you know who that's like? That's like what happened in the garden, like what happened with Adam. So I would say absolutely the Bible names that as a covenant. There's a covenant kind of relationship between Adam and God. 
Also in, in Romans chapter 5, though the word isn't used, you've got Adam representing the human race and you have Jesus representing the human race. And we know Jesus is the one who is covenantally related based upon what is explicitly said about him. And so you draw the conclusion in light of Hosea, in light of the verbiage, in light of the representation. And that's why most Christians have said throughout the ages, I think that's fair to say, that Adam was our federal head. Not all Christians believe that. But many, many Christians have in the Reformed tradition. It's absolutely been the case. He's our federal head. Adam wasn't just a bad example. We're guilty. We stand condemned based upon the work of another representation. Federal headship of Adam. Covenantal headship of Adam. Think about salvation. Do we stand uh, accepted by God because of what we do? No, we don't stand acceptable by God by what we do. It's based upon what another does. It's a federal representation. He is the one who represents us before God. And we have the first Adam. And as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, we have the last Adam. It's an important covenant. Even in helping us to understand salvation. Lord willing, I'm going to write my doctoral dissertation uh, on something related to federal headship. Because too many Christians I know are denying some aspect of federal headship, covenantal headship of Adam. And when that goes, what happens time and time again is federal headship of Christ goes. And when that goes, it's a half step away from major problems when it comes to the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, to quote Martin Luther, the doctrine of justification. Omaha Bible Church in our doctrinal statement, though we don't use the word, absolutely affirms the federal headship of Adam. He represents the human race. The federal headship of Christ. He rep represents the human race. It's, it's the foundation for believing in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so goes your view of Adam. So goes your view of Christ. So that's another covenant. I'm getting caught up on that, and I shouldn't. Let's look at some other biblical covenants uh, moving beyond that. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 15. You can look there if you'd like. Genesis 15, Abrahamic covenant. It's elsewhere like in Genesis 17. It says when in verse 17 of Genesis 15, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, that is, of the cut animal, because uh, that's where they're making and taking oaths that they're going to keep their end of the, the agreement. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, or Abram. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. What's unique there is, and some people say it was... It was you know, Unconditional is how it's described because God causes Abram to fall asleep. God makes the covenant. God swears. God takes the oath himself. And therefore, what Abram does or doesn't do cannot break that covenant. It's important to us because that actually is the line that we connect with in light of Galatians, and our salvation is tied to God's promise made there and God's oath and God's commitment and developing out of that is going to be the new covenant. It's vital and important. In that book I referenced earlier, Sacred Bond, I found a very helpful illustration of the Abrahamic covenant. I think this will help you even understand Genesis. 
Here's what they write in that book. In the opening scenes to Peter Jackson's film adaptation of Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, a narrator sets up the plot of the story by giving the viewer a condensed history lesson on the mythological world of Middle-earth. The movie touches on critical events over thousands of years of history, explaining the significance of Sauron's ring and how it fell into the hands of a hobbit named Bilbo. Once the prologue is complete and the plot is made clear, the speed of the camera slows down. And the story focuses on its central character, Frodo, the nephew of Bilbo, who must destroy the ring. The book of Genesis unfolds in a similar way. Although it is true history and not mythology, the first 11 chapters are an overview of ancient history, a prologue leading up to the central character of the story, Abraham. Once Abraham is introduced, the speed of the camera slows down as it were, and the narrator focuses on the covenant that God made with him and his offspring, a covenant that is predominant to the plot of redemptive history and the unity of the Scriptures. Helpful for me. Maybe it's helpful for you. Abrahamic covenant is vital, crucial. Again, carrying us all the way through the whole Bible, all the way into Galatians, including our salvation. I won't take the time to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, where the gospel is preached to Abraham, Paul says. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're just surveying some of these covenants, some of these uh, contracts, some of these um, formalized agreements. Contract's probably not the best synonym. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, He shall build a house for my name, God speaking, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Commonly agreed upon, that's the Davidic covenant. And then we get to the New Testament. We have Jesus being in the line of David. Jesus being referred to uh, as David himself. Well, because there's going to be a dynasty and it's going to be an everlasting dynasty. He's going to rule and reign forever. So Jesus needs to be in the line of David to fulfill that promise in the Davidic covenant. What's interesting is in 2 Samuel, it's not called a covenant, but we all know that it's a covenant. It's called a covenant later, but it's not called a covenant there. It doesn't have to be called a covenant. We, we know what it is based upon the way it's described. We also have the Mosaic covenant in the New Testament. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's another one of these uh, commitments that God makes. Not all covenants are the same. We're going to talk about this. We're going to take two weeks to talk about this later, but just for now, to see the the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Moses. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us, in Horeb, or Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. Oh, he's referring back to the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant's first. But now we have a different kind of covenant, the Sinai covenant. But with us, who are all of us here alive today, 
The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so on it goes. Mosaic covenant. Covenant made at Sinai. And there's a big difference between the Abrahamic covenant where we find salvation and grace. Mosaic covenant where we don't find those things. We have the Mosaic covenant as we would read in Galatians pushing us, leading us to Christ, showing us our inability somewhat like that covenant with Adam we'll talk about in the days ahead. Doesn't mean it's a bad covenant, but it's a different kind of covenant. Our salvation is not based upon the Mosaic covenant. One thing it does, it shows us sin, it shows us guilt. It's different. The New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 1 Corinthians 11, the book of Hebrews has the New Covenant as well. That's a super important one for right now. We're not taking the time to talk about the New Covenant. How many more do I want to do? I'll do one more covenant. I'm not trying to cover all of them, but one more major covenant in the Bible would be called the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Sort of like the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. It's not called the covenant of redemption in Ephesians chapter 1, but for shorthand, many theologians have said over the years, when you try to describe what's happening in eternity past between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and as they're purposing to provide redemption and their, predesti- their predestination by the Father, and the Son's going to play His role, and the Spirit's going to play His role. If you read Ephesians 1, you see all three members of the Trinity doing their part, and theologians have given a shorthand explanation. They've said, that's, that, that, that's a covenant. That's a commitment. That's an agreement. That's a pact. It's a covenant. They've called it the covenant of redemption. We will do this. This will happen according to sovereign grace. I love the way John MacArthur puts it. I'm quoting him because I'm just going to quote him <laughs> for, for certain reasons. But I love what he says about this covenant, the covenant of redemption. The eternal pledge of our salvation, the divine covenant of redemption, involved a promise made by the Father to the Son before time began. End of quotation. And added to that, there would be the Spirit as well in light of Ephesians chapter 1, which John would agree to. So that's just a sampling of those oaths that are made in the Bible, those significant oaths that God makes And if you can at least understand a little bit about these commitments, these formal relationships, that we're not just free to do whatever we want to do. Adam wasn't just free to do whatever he wanted to do. And to see God making these promises, making these commitments, sometimes, well, always with stipulations, it'll help you. And you'll start to see a pattern. And then you say, well, there was that with Adam, as Hosea says. And then we have Jesus doing the right things that Adam didn't do. Hmm. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Federal representation. 
now we understand the legs that hold up the table called salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone because Christ, as the last Adam, as he's called, represents us rightly. We'll talk more about that. These things become vital. They become vital. I liked what one author said. There is no place in this history of creation, redemption, and consummation for an autonomous self. Our covenantal identity is established in creation, Adam, and in the new creation, in Christ. Let's move on to another theme, number three, Exodus. Exodus is another super important theme. You can turn to the book of Exodus, and Exodus means exit, right? Um, but when we start to see what the book of Exodus is about, we start seeing it as uh, about deliverance, about redemption, about God's preeminent saving event in Israel's history. The more I read all of the Bible and the more I read Exodus, the more I read Exodus in a gospel sense. Try it. Try reading Exodus, knowing what you know. And while it's not the gospel, you'll say, wow. There's all kinds of all kinds of gospel shadows. Maybe we might say, there, there's there there's all kinds of foreshadowing. It's amazing to read Exodus in light of what you know, and you say this is absolutely amazing. This is a book about redemption. This is a book of, uh, about redemption, and and I, I'm connecting all kinds of amazing dots here uh, regarding who Jesus is and what he claimed to do and what he claims about himself and. Even not too long ago in Luke, we saw that, that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem for his exodus. But that was just good luck that he happened to use that word. No. He's going to provide redemption, the ultimate exodus, the ultimate freeing. And we have anticipation in the book of Exodus. And it's tied to God's faithfulness to his covenant. Let's see. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Exodus 2, 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. He's going to redeem his people out of slavery and he's going to do it because he's already shown himself to be a covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And he made the covenant with Abram. And based upon that relationship, because he's their God, like we talked about this morning, and they could say, he's our God. And he is going to deliver the people out of that enslavement. doesn't mean they were spiritually delivered. You had to actually trust and believe in Christ and be a believer, but it was that foreshadowing, that, that, that looking ahead of what would be ultimate in Christ. It's also interesting in Exodus. Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 6, if you're already, already in the book, you'll see it is a redemption kind of theme. Exodus 6, 6 says... Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. They're being oppressed, they're being enslaved, there are too many of them, they're feeling threatened. And then it says, and I will deliver you 
That's, that's salvation kind of talk. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you. Ah, freedom. With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Well, guess what? It provides the, 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 the great paradigm for what we're going to see Christ do. And you say, you're reading too much into Exodus. You should too. And Jesus scolds the Pharisees for not doing it. And he's going to use this kind of terminology for himself. It's in, in anticipation. Maybe going to a different, a little bit different theme, a parallel I think you'll find interesting. In Exodus, like in chapter 7, you've got signs and wonders. Uh, where else do we have signs and wonders among other places? Well, we have signs and wonders when it comes to the earthly ministry of Jesus. Redemption, signs and wonders. All of a sudden Jesus shows up and he's doing signs and wonders. Hmm, wonder where we've seen this before. Yeah, we've got signs and wonders. Again, why? Because there's redemption coming. It's anticipating. There's a pattern here. Signs and wonders aren't normative. They're not normally happening throughout the Old Testament. They're extraordinary. Deliverance tide. Then we move on. We have Passover in Exodus. I won't take the time to read it because we're going to run out of time. Exodus chapter 12 deals with the Passover, the Lord's Passover, which is such an important thing. Oh, and we're going to do uh, a Sunday night dealing with uh, holidays and holy days. Okay, and we'll talk about um, that at a later time. So just a brief overview for tonight. We have Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We're not reading stuff in here we're not supposed to see. Passover, anticipation of ultimate Passover. This is all on purpose. This is all by design. Just a couple of other miscellaneous things. I already referenced Luke chapter 9, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, his exodus. There you have the, the two key her heroes of the Old Testament, the historical figures. And they're speaking of Jesus. Literally, it is in Luke 9, chapter 31. Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish. They know about exodus. We should know about exodus. The ultimate exodus. Another just a point of interest I found interesting, something I wasn't ever thinking about before, uh, and that's Revelation chapter 15. We won't take the time to go there, but in Revelation chapter 15, you've got believers who've been delivered. And they're singing the song of Moses. I thought, hmm, what in the world are they doing singing the song of Moses? Well, in Exodus 15, you have Moses' song having been delivered crossing the Red Sea. And God bringing judgment on the enemies of Israel. Now we fast forward book of Revelation. They've been delivered from their enemies. And what are they doing? They're singing the song of the Lamb, I think, off the top of my head, Revelation 15. And they're also singing the song of Moses because guess what? They're intentional parallels. Because one was a foreshadowing of the other. They're meant to complement each other. This is fascinating. I'm more excited about reading the Bible than I've ever been in my whole life. I'm more excited about reading the Old Testament than I ever have been in my whole life. Not to find weird things that we ought not be finding. 
but because we actually have this stuff laid out for us. And if somebody pushes pause on the remote control and says, hey, let me give you a little help. I can help you a little bit with plot lines. I can help you a little bit with subplots. And I can help, help you with characters. And it's going to make way more sense. I'm like, this is awesome. I could have figured it out on my own on a desert island given 85 years. Maybe, probably not. This is awesome to see. This is great to see. And really what it comes down to is where we're going with all of this is we're seeing the intentional, scriptural, divinely designed centrality of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Song of Moses is meant to be an anticipation of the song of none other than the Lamb. I love this stuff. Doesn't mean you still don't have to pay attention. Doesn't mean you still don't have to pay extra attention. But nevertheless, it sure helps. Let's move on to two more. Number four, tabernacle or temple. Because really, so many times there's overlap. I'm going to focus on tabernacle. Um, and again, we're going to spend more time on this on a later date. This is just a preview for major themes. Tabernacle, temple. Let's start in the New, in the New Testament this time. Starting in the New Testament this time, I'm reading... Brand new, reading John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and I know based upon verse 1, because I've been taught that at least, I'm thankful for that, the Word is none other than the one who was in the beginning with God, so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and somebody helps me to understand, and dwelt among us could also be translated tabernacled. Boy, I'm sure glad you told me that. I'm using a little sarcasm here because that doesn't really help me if I don't know anything. You just told me to read John because that's what you're supposed to read from the beginning. I'm reading John and then you give me this profound insight and you say, and it really means tabernacled. Wow. It means nothing. But if you can help me understand that there's background in the Bible and you can push pause on the remote, so to speak, and just spend a few minutes talking about the significance of the tabernacle and helping at least to understand that the tabernacle is, is essentially equivalent to the extraordinary, unique presence of God throughout the Old Testament where it's used. Now I can understand. Jesus came, He became flesh, and He is the unique presence of God, presence of God among us. He, he tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent, if you will, as some people have said. But it's not just He pitched His tent. With the people of Israel, that's where God dwelled, or dwelt, where He would later dwell in the temple doesn't mean God wasn't already omnipresent. It means there's an extraordinary, unique, affirming, even doing battle for the people of Israel, presence. Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. That's how we know for sure the emphasis is on dwelling. That I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Tabernacle dwelling, unique dwelling, official, personal dwelling. But now let's go to the New Testament again. Now let's go to the book of Hebrews. Two significant passages in Hebrews. Significant in meaning, significant in length. Hebrews 8, and if time we'll do Hebrews 9. Hebrews 8 
in Hebrews 9. Okay, major theme in the Bible. If you're going to appreciate the work of Christ all the more, you're going to grasp it all the more, you've got to understand this, this reality of tabernacle. You have to understand the reality that when the people were wandering and the people were, were in exile, that God was with them and He met them, if you will, in the tabernacle and then eventually the temple in Jerusalem. And you say, what does this have to do with me as a Christian understanding my Bible? Well, read what the book of Hebrews says about this. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and following. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. So we're talking that he's using tabernacle terminology. But if we understand that comes from Exodus, where God was uniquely dwelling in the tabernacle, but now he's talking about Jesus. And he says, in the true tent, the true tabernacle, there's something more significant. Then keep reading, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow. Oh, those earthly priests who were in the tabernacle and then the temple afterward serve as a shadow. There's there's something for signifying of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Verse 6, but as it is, how about this? Here's the current reality. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now there's a whole lot going on there, and I'll grant to you, there's all kinds of issues happening. But let's at least see that even there, the author of Hebrews is saying that that even based upon what was happening in the tabernacle, It demanded anticipation for something greater and more. There's a built-in fault mechanism. This could not be the end all. There's got to be something more. It's anticipating something more, something greater. And we've got to understand something about the tabernacle if we're going to understand how Jesus tabernacles among us. Oh, he's the greater one. Albert Muller, after citing that passage, says this. We should have been able to look to the tabernacle. I feel scolded. We should have been able to look to the tabernacle and see not only the holy place, but also the most holy place. And we should have been able to see what was going on in the tabernacle and later in the temple and say, there has to be something that will eliminate this veil. right or not, the author of Hebrews is arguing that that tabernacle is temporary and is looking for something greater. And the greater thing it's looking toward is none other than the one who would tabernacle among us in John chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about this as well. 
is also quite helpful. I'm not going to take the time to read it. Yes, I am. Verse 11, Hebrews 9, 11. Turn over two chapters if you would. But when Christ appeared as a high priest to offer good things... Now, again, just stop for a second. This doesn't make any sense unless I take some time to read Exodus, unless I spend some time maybe in Leviticus to understand he's the one we're anticipating, he's the greater one. And you say, this sure is a lot to learn for me to just understand the Christian book. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's not that hard to get a grasp on it. At least to begin to get a grasp on it and understand how great Christ is. And that God was planning for him all along. That there are dots to be connected. That it is one developing drama even though it's complicated in a sense. But when Christ appeared, verse 11, as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Remember Exodus, redemption talk. Remember tabernacle talk, uh, sacrifice talk. For if the blood of bulls and blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, he's greater. Don't go back to shadows. Shadow grabbing is ludicrous. It's Christ. He's the substance. He's the one. Well, more can and should be said. I want to do a, a Sunday night, and I want to call it Sacred Spaces. Okay, and we'll talk about Tabernacle. We'll talk about Temple. Um, we'll talk about Eden as a sacred space. We'll talk about the Promised Land. We'll talk about the New Earth. Um, but for now, we need to move on. One final one. We can do this one rather quickly. Uh, another major Bible theme, a big-picture Bible theme, would be righteousness. Righteousness. And then we'll, we'll, we'll be done and do five more next time. Righteous is used Genesis to Revelation again and again and again and again and again and again. The first time it really struck me, and I'm ashamed to say this, the first time it really struck me is reading through the Psalms for Scripture reading, you know, 16 years ago, 15 plus years ago at Omaha Bible Church. Now, I knew the Bible talked about righteousness, and I, I, I wasn't, you know, completely fresh. But it, it almost troubled me. It's just all over the place. Righteous, 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 righteous. Well, guess what? Genesis to Revelation, it's everywhere. And if you can at least have a grasp on righteousness and how righteousness is used, you, you hit the ground running. You can make a lot more sense of things. Righteousness and justice essentially are the same, coming from the same word groups. So God, it's tied to God, therefore, because God is righteous. God is just. Oh, it's courtroom kind of emphasis. And it has to do with His law. He's a righteous judge. He is fair. He does things according to His character and His laws according to His character. And this is running throughout the whole Bible. And then we see that we 
need to be righteous. We need to keep His law because we're not free agents. We have a certain kind of relationship with Him. As we saw, it's a covenantal relationship. So we're obligated to keep His law and treat Him like He's God, like I always like to say. And then we start learning early on, early, early, early on, even if the word righteous isn't used, that we're not righteous. And then we start working our way through those passages that are awful whether they're the Psalm 14s or other ones in the New Testament, like Romans chapter 3, nobody's righteous. Well, that's a major problem because we have to be righteous. We have to be law keepers. And the essence of God's law is to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, exactly what Adam and Eve didn't do. That's righteousness. That's just. So what do we do? We have a major problem. Oh, and then by the way, so as to not be confused by the whole thing, sometimes the same word is used, but it's describing something that's more relative. Sure, there's a, there's a horizontal kind of righteousness, external kind of righteousness, where people seem to do the right thing and they're law-abiding citizens. And the Bible uses that term, that same term in that sense sometimes. That's why you don't build your theology on word studies alone. You build your theology on the context and how words are used authorial intent based upon context because maybe someone is righteous in a relative sense but in a vertical sense there is not one righteous no not how many no not one so we have a huge problem god is going to uphold his law and therefore he's going to give us what we deserve and the consequence of unrighteousness is condemnation it's spiritual death and physical death and it's a mess and so then the good news comes in genesis you thought i was going to say john the good news comes in genesis right where we explicitly have stated genesis 15 that abraham believed god and it was what it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't teach he was righteous. If you read enough about Abraham, you're not going to think he was righteous. But it was counted to him as righteousness. He's trusting in the good news that's been proclaimed to him as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3. And so, now we understand what Paul will develop in Romans 3 and 4 and 5, that God is a righteous judge. And he says, if you do the right thing, you'll live. But we don't. And he says, if you don't do the right thing, you'll die. And that's what we deserve. And now we have a context to understand Christ and the gospel and Jesus, that he comes and he does the work for us. He keeps the law for us. He fulfills the law for us so that God can declare us righteous even though we're not. It's vital to understand righteousness. When we use righteousness in our culture, most of the time it's in a negative sense because someone is what kind of righteous? Self-righteous, holier than thou. Well, Christians of all people should know they're not self-righteous. We should be the first one to admit to people that we of all people deserve to go to hell and that we are sinful even in our hearts. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 is, is just a great summation of this. And then I'll read Romans 3, 26. Romans 4, 5. But the whole argument is Romans 1, Romans 3, 4, 5. It really helps us to have a whole 
theology of righteousness. And, and when we understand Romans, we can understand the whole Old Testament as it would do this. But Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts in him who justifies, oh, that's declares righteous. Him who justifies, he who declares righteous, the ungodly. You see, it has to be a declaration if you're looking at verse 5, because it can't be a making righteous because we're actually ungodly and we're not doing any works. So justifies the ungodly, his faith, and the context has an object of faith, meaning Jesus. His faith, read in context, his faith in Jesus, the righteous, is counted as righteous. It's like the best verse in the whole Bible. I'm not righteous, therefore I'm in huge trouble. So what happens? I need to trust in an outside source, the one who is the righteous, who's none other than Christ, and then God can accept me without being a violator of His own law. Which is what, which is what Romans chapter 3 talks about. Romans 3.26. It is to show His righteousness, God's standard keeping, His justice at the present time so that He, God, might be the just, the righteous the lawkeeper, and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I'll never tire of saying this, and some of you have you, you heard it so many times, you might be tiring of hearing it, but I'll say it again. God doesn't compromise His justice for you to become a Christian. God doesn't say, let's just let bygones be bygones. You know, I know I said the wages of sin is death, but you know what, I really kind of like you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do any such thing. Or you know what? I used to be grumpier in my younger age. He doesn't say that. He doesn't think that. He's the eternal God who doesn't change. What He does is magnificent and extraordinary. He maintains His law that says the wages of sin is death. He maintains His... That's the consequence. He maintains His law that says you must honor Me as God perfectly. Love Me with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He maintains it. He never changes it. Nor does he make it higher and say, just jump a little higher because he's mean. It's always righteous standard. Always the same. Treat me like I'm God. And then what? But Pat, I'm going to let you into heaven? He can't. He can't do that. Unless he himself provides a substitute through his son, the righteous, the law keeper, who always, even when he was tempted like the first Adam, who failed, he always honors God the way I need to honor God. And then he atones for my dishonoring of God. And he does this for me. So now, Romans chapter 3, God can be the just, the righteous judge, and the justifier, the one declaring Pat Abendroth righteous, even though he isn't. He's the ungodly of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if I lost you on that, I'm sorry. I didn't have any more hands to try to get it all figured out. God does not flinch. And He's not unjust. He's not compromising. The just keeping His standard and the justifier declaring people like you and people like me righteous even though we're not. Because we have faith in Jesus, who is? It doesn't get any more logical. And it doesn't get any more biblical. And it's awesome.
got to understand righteousness or the Bible will be a riddle book and be very complex. Okay, hope it's helpful. Here's what I want you to do now. Push play and enjoy the rest of the show. <laughs> Go read your Bible and you'll hopefully read it better. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for uh, the fact that you put people in our lives that can help us to understand these things. And uh, you tell us in your word that everything that we have is been, has been given to us. This is a gift. It's not because we're just getting smarter because we're so good. It's because you're allowing us to learn more and grasp these big concepts so that we can understand a drama that has been unfolding for thousands and thousands of years. We're thankful that we know how it ends. We're thankful to know how you work and who you are. It's because you've revealed yourself. Uh, encourage the men and women who are here tonight and those who would listen at another time to read their Bibles and to read their Bibles Christianly in a way that would honor you and uh, encourage us through that. In Jesus' name, amen.